Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Hello, everyone. Hey there. How are you doing, Kara? Um, I'm okay. I'm tired because we just had a party at my house. It was the end of the year holiday party, and I'm tired, but it was a really fun party, and it was lovely having a blend of work. So it was really good. It was we, good. It was a fun party, and this is our final recording of the year, and we have a very special guest here today. Uh, we have Professor Claire Mallison to talk to us about agriculture and perceptions about agriculture in ancient Egypt, and so it should be a really fun, fun talk. But but first, Claire, can you introduce yourself to the to the listeners and a little talk a little bit about your research and everything? Yeah, sure. So at the moment, I'm a professor in the American University in Beirut, and I've been here for five and a half years. Um, before that, I was freelance working as a specialist on lots of different excavations in Egypt, and I still work for lots of those excavations, um, working as a specialist. Um, and before that, I was doing my PhD in Liverpool, and I specialize in the study of agriculture of ancient Egypt through the study of plant remains. So I'm an archaeobotanist first and foremost, um, studying specifically farming in Egypt because there's different strands of archaeobotany um, and we all look at things a different way. So that's what my research is focused on. But I also particularly through my teaching, um, look at things to settlement archaeology and everyday life in ancient Egypt. So food production, production tools and crafts and those kind of things. And also because most of the excavations I work on are at settlements, that's, that all ties everything together. And because of being an archaeobotanist, I also have to think a lot about archaeology itself. So the mechanisms of how we interpret things we excavate and how complicated that can be sometimes. Yeah. So, so you're like the main character and the female character in Jurassic Park. Uh, yes, I can't remember who she is in that film, but yes, Larder. Yeah. Laura Dern's character. She is an archaeobotanist, and um, um, and just yeah, not for so, dinosaurs. <laughs> just, yeah, you're so just not, yeah, that old. The frame, but that much that younger stuff. Just for our listeners, if they aren't familiar with archaeobotany, because that's a really cool subfield of archaeology, could you give like a a little background to how you work? So you're you're collect seed remains and other things like this, and then how do you analyze them and um, in the field? And so actually, archaeobotany is literally the study of archaeological plant remains, and the first people who did this were working with sample things from Egypt because they opened up Egyptian tombs and they had plant offerings in them that were perfectly, well, perfectly preserved because they just dried out, basically, mm -hmm. in arid conditions. I, I always say the plant remains from a tomb. It looks like an unsulfured dried fruit from Trader Joe's, and it's not that too yeah. far off. It's just a couple thousand years older than you would like yeah, to eat. Yeah, you might not want to eat them. <laughs> yeah, but they look like figs. They, look, well, like, they look yeah. like dates. They look like the things that they are, which is pretty extraordinary. Yeah. And the flowers are just like dried flowers. You know, mm -hmm. It's exactly what they are. Um, and so for a long time, people were studying. They were collecting the plants from tombs. And then maybe when they were, if, the, if they excavated something like a town or a temple, 
if they saw things when they were digging, they would collect them. So, for example, Petrie collected things from Pahun because he could see them. Um, but people, what the bot- it was mainly botanists at that point, and they were interested in things like the evolution of the plants. So how did the seeds change? How had the seeds evolved and how had the shape of the seeds changed? And did they have the same plants in ancient Egypt as they did now? So it was mainly a really specifically botanical approach. And then in the 1960s, when and particularly the 70s, when archaeology went through its revolutions and natural sciences got much more involved on a more scientific level, people started specifically collecting samples of deposits from archaeological sites, so layers and fills and halves and fireplaces and just all basically garbage, all the garbage left behind um, in people's settlements. And in uh, they started using geological methods to process these samples to extract the plant remains. And what that basically involves is either for most of the world and most sites, you put the soil into water and the plant remains float to the top. And they're usually only burned plant remains because, of course, conditions at sites mean most things are going to completely decompose. But when mm-hmm. plants are they're preserved, like charcoal, mm-hmm. it's just burned wood. Oh, yeah. in specific conditions and you can tell what it was yeah. and it's the same with plants and it's kind of counterintuitive to think that burning actually preserves them but it does mm-hmm. if it's the wrong conditions in the fire particularly like in an oven with not much oxygen so the seeds are preserved and the bits of the plants are preserved in exactly the same shape and some things disappear completely and other things are perfectly preserved by burning so you put this in water they float to the top you collect them in special fine sieves dry them out and then spend hours looking at them through a microscope and identifying what they are and counting them. So there's an awful lot of counting involved. In Egypt and in a few other parts of the world, plants can be preserved desiccation, the drying out that you get in tombs. But some settlements in Egypt are away from the river or they're really high above the floodplain in a really dry part of Egypt. So in the south of Egypt, in places like Elephantine, it was on mm-hmm. a mound, it's on an island, it's above the, it's a blood to the flood level, it had to be, it's in the river. And it's incredibly dry and hot and arid. So we get basically everything preserved, so not just the burned remains. Um, and there's other ways of things being preserved, like water logging. So shipwreck is preserved because it's never been in contact with oxygen, just water. Um, so there's things in the Mediterranean that are useful. Um, but if you're interested in farming, then you need the garbage from from settlement sites so what we do is what we're, we're not looking at what people ate we're looking at what people threw away the mm-hmm. inned and that's the key everyone mm-hmm. always thinks we're thinking about what people eat so they ate this and they ate that well that is an outcome of it but it would be like you can't study if i came to your house cara i wouldn't know and your refrigerator is gone is empty you've left and everything in the refrigerator is decomposed I'd only know what you'd be consuming by what's in the garbage bin, mm-hmm. the bottles, the containers, the banana skins, the orange peel, the olive pits, all that kind of stuff. So it's the waste parts that we mm-hmm. study. The way, yeah. It's and and your, your work then is a super important corrective to what so many Egyptologists do, including myself, which is go towards where things are preserved into the dry, arid tools and, and see that preservation there. But you're drawn to those places near the the wetness, near the river, where it's really hard to dig, it's really hard to work, but then you're you're trying to 
to really figure out how people lived, what they ate, maybe other living conditions, which was what students and, and other people interested in the ancient world ask about all the time. How did they go to the bathroom is like a question that we get on the date. But <laughs> at least I, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and these are the kinds of things that your work can actually hit in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the big differences as well is that anything in a tomb is curated. They trace, it's like the team scene. They're not depicting going to the bathroom in the tomb. Yeah. No, it's a perfected <laughs> wonderland. It, like, yeah, everything's everything ideal. Is, everything's idealized. Yeah. yeah. So again, the other example I use with my students is if you've got, and it's also the example to explain why texts are not always really reliable for understanding these things. I could write a shopping list of what I'm going to buy, idealized organic fruit and veg, blah, 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 blah. But then my garbage bin might have a wrapper from somewhere or a plastic packaging of some kind of junk cleared or something again it's the garbage that tells tells the truth it and you, might lie. Not, you don't yeah. get all of you don't get all of the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle you often get only a very few pieces of the jigsaw puzzle but they're much more truthful and and you get more pieces of the jigsaw puzzle from egypt south than you do egypt's north and i know you're living in beirut and you work in the larger levantine basin the larger middle east you, you don't get as much preservation in that part of the world, or, or do you compared to Egypt? It depends where you are in the region. So in Lebanon, my experience so far has been that preservation is pretty poor because even of, because even burned remains, you know, in, say, saline conditions, the salt absorb, the things absorb the salt and they get destroyed, just like temples do when they absorb salt. Um, um, places like the the like northern parts of the Euphrates, there's a lot of evidence from there, but that's because they dedicated a lot of time to looking for it. But it is all burned remains. Mm. So southern regions of Egypt, or even desert regions of Egypt. So things like the eastern desert forts, they're they're late, they're Roman, they're Islamic, mm-hmm. but the preservation in those is unbelievably good. So yeah. Arid conditions in Egypt mean I've got so much more information than other people have. And and the other cool thing about archaeobotany is that you track long durations of time, whereas I'm looking at like a quick change within a dynasty or something like that. You're like, no, it has been like this for this many thousands of years. And this plant came in at this time and just just big sweeping sorts of, of changes. Yeah, and we can look at it on various different scales. We can look at on a kind of a almost slight micro level scale of changes in phases through a settlement that was occupied, you know, like a mana occupied for such a short time that even that has phases and you could look at changes through time within one household, the house is occupied and then maybe it's refurbished and renovated. And then there's a change in time, but then we can also do broad scale, broad changes. I mean, at the moment I'm looking at, well, everything from 18,000 to uh, about 1,000 be 18,000 at all. That old, um, oh so yeah, prehistoric. Wow. The, the, and the really great thing about archaeobotany, which is a bit different to some of the other specialisms in material culture in Egypt, is that we've got real consistency in methods between different specialists. A, there's not many people doing it. And B, um, there's real consistency, generally speaking, in how things are recovered and processed and studied. There's always going to be differences between different individuals because we've all got different eyes and different experience. So we're going to, like anyone, you're going to see different things when you look at it. And archaeobotany is like botany 
some of it is subjective. They can't agree on identification of plants now. Mm -hmm. Modern botanists can't agree on which plant is which sometimes. So when the seed has been burned and buried in the ground for a few thousand years, we're not always going to necessarily. But there's, there's things that are there's things that are less certain and some things that are much easier and we're all going to be easily able to agree on it. So, yeah, and there's great consistency. So it's much easier to do direct comparisons between the results from different sites. There's other, there's other types of material culture, um, so stone tools, for example, lithics, where there's so many different methods and different ways of recording what you see that it's really difficult for people to cross compare across sites mm -hmm. and through time so yeah we have a yeah. it benefits from being a small field i think it's great yeah it's great to hear and then getting into our topic for today a little bit when we were emailing back and forth with you and talking about what we wanted to chat chat about um you had a really interesting activity you were doing with your students looking at the misconceptions of farming and agriculture and you had them ask AI what farming was like in ancient Egypt. <laughs> and so I performed the same tasks. I was like, what does AI think? What does the internet think about ancient Egypt and farming? And we could have a whole other episode on AI and ChatGPT and ancient Egypt and other things. But I, I will quickly read out the, the results. And so you, we can talk a bit about that in a second. So farming was a labor-intensive activity. And most Egyptians were involved in some aspect of agriculture. The labor force included both men and women, and there was a clear division of labor between the sexes. Men typically did the heavier work, such as plowing and harvesting, while women were responsible for planting, weeding, and threshing. Farming played a central role in Egyptian society. Farmers were highly respected members of the community, and their work was essential to the survival of the civilization. Wow, that's positivist and very simplified. Extraordinary. Yeah. Well, and wow. I, I think I think the key key phrase here that we're we're gonna really muddy and mess with today is farmers were highly respected members <laughs> of the community. Um, so yeah. So why? What inspired you to deal with this with your students? Um, well, I mean, there's so this is one example, and there's uh, there's various issues with this, and of yeah. course every. AI, but depending on where you are and what your algorithms are, you're going to come up with different results depending on where yeah. you are in the world and what mm. you search based on where you are. Ah, interesting. That I have not tried. Yeah. I have not tried yeah. that AI question from different places. Like turn on a VPN yeah. and pretend to be somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. You may get different results in different yeah. regions. Um, and then what they all, and so, so they did that, this exercise and they came up varying different things they came up with. Um, and then we also, I also got them to just do a quick Google search and tell me what was in the first kind of top three results. And some of the results aren't so bad, but there's a, year, there's a few major misconceptions that come up. Um, so with the quote that you've given, um, mm -hmm. um, the thing to do with the division of labor. So I'm sure there was a division of labor between sexes. And if you did an analysis of tomb scenes, you'd probably come up with yeah. them clear. But and, and even I, just thinking off the top of my head and having looked at so many, oh, as many tomb scenes as I possibly can of agriculture, um, the, the idea that, that women were responsible for planting, weeding, mm -hmm. and threshing, all the of less, those are, The less like, intense All of labor. those are wrong. Well, it's not, I'm sure, the same. there's all of the scenes where someone's sowing seeds, it's a man. Mm -hmm. um, weeding wasn't even done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and threshing. The problem is here, they're conflating all of separate activities within threshing. So there's various different stages to what you might consider to be threshing. There's threshing, Mm -hmm. there's winnowing, uh, the threshing, winnowing and sieving. Mm -hmm. And so this thing is actually usually a woman doing it, but the threshing and the winnowing is usually usually led by a man. Mm. And this generalization of old kingdom tomb scenes coming to the front of my head. So just to be clear, these are all tomb scenes, mostly from the old kingdom. Things that people depicted in idealized fashion in their tomb, rich people, landowners depicted in their tombs. And then we then use that to create a gender binary assignment of labor. Yeah. Yeah. And it's exactly. And I'm sure they weren't going completely beyond the realms of what was happening, but quite sure it was much more mixed up than this. Mm -hmm. The other things that come out when you look through Google or sometimes through AI, one one thing that's always stated is they had canals for irrigation. And I think we'll get into that later in, later in the discussion. Big problem there. Um, and, um, and then there's often real inaccuracies in what they say were grown. Inevitably, uh. they talk about um, uh, cultivating or producing lentils and chickpeas. And there's a real question hanging over that. I'm not saying they weren't grown in Egypt. I've got students doing a PhD on this at the moment, but they were. They weren't a crop. They might have been a garden produced, mm. but there wasn't fields of chickpeas in ancient right. Egypt. It's right. absolutely certain. Um, I love it then, when I can, I can, when I can sense just a little bit where the archaeobotanists start to like put on their suicide vests and pull the trigger because they just get so bothered it's like it's the chickpeas <laughs> and they're like there were chickpeas there were not and i can you can just sense that there's this yeah. simmering simmering current of, of yeah. deep ego attached to the chickpea question yeah and that's really being so my student in warsaw is really going into this in real detail and she's bringing together as much textual evidence as she possibly can and all the archaeobotanical evidence and thinking about the different preservation of things. So again, the chickpeas are going to have been eaten. Yeah. So they might well be missing from the archaeobotany because they've been consumed. Now, not all of them are going to have been consumed because people burn things while they're cooking. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get a few, but they're going to have, like when I look at plants, you get far more of the waste part of the plant than you get of the grains. Mm-hmm. And the outer this part what, of a chickpea is not a whole lot to be preserved. No, and so, it's, not yeah. going to be, it's not likely to preserve well in burning mm. also missing them in the sites where we have desiccation but she's also doing a really in-depth um qu- querying about the texts and the names that are used because mm. this mm. is another bugbear names of plants in ancient texts lexicography names, names, of, names of, yeah yeah lexicography is the worst it's the worst for wood it's the worst for paints it's the worst Textiles. for coffin types oh my god oh my god yeah. it's it's so difficult, yeah. And I mean, the things, some things that we have identified, or I mean, I think we're, we're mo- there's various people moving towards it. A couple of other things I've read and what I've looked at as well is that, and also when you do look at ethnographic studies of traditional farming, there's a really great study of traditional farming of Emma Weed in Ethiopia. And so they identify there's about eight different names for slightly different versions of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. and how on earth would we possibly now recognize those in texts? Mm. And it gives you an idea of how very far removed we are in this modern concrete world we have constructed for ourselves from the, the food that we eat 
We don't grow it. We're not self-sufficient. We we don't even garden really anymore. Most of us, I know maybe in Beirut, it's different, but, and in Los Angeles, I've got like a neighbor away down across the way. She grows all kinds of stuff and I should be doing the same, but I don't. But when was the last time any of us, probably besides you, Claire, were on a farm and and had some idea of how things and that farm, if we went to it, it would be unrecognizably industrialized. Yeah, I was gonna say even yeah. just like the types of plant, like they have just like we grow one type of banana, one type yeah. of grain, right? There's yeah. the diversity is just I mean, I yeah. was reading an article in the Smithsonian recently about like native grapes varietals that yeah. this one guy in Missouri is bringing back and how they taste like totally different than like, you know, European grapes and yeah. trying to bring back all these different grape varietals. And, yeah. you know, and also what is in a field? So ecological diversity is not just about the, so there's things like maize, there's and all crops, there's loads of different varieties of crops. Like there's lots of research in, in maize in the Americas and how mm-hmm. many huge different the varieties they were and we'd wiped them all out. Um, with grains, you're way down to a few small varieties of cereals. But um, it's not just that, it's to do with what else is in the field. So industrial modern farming is all monocrop. It's one, it's not just monocrop, it's monoplant, you know, herbicides and GM crops. We have right. one plant growing in the field. So the field is literally just a field of one thing, whereas um, some of the research I've done and what farms were like before we had pesticides and herbicides and all these kind of things. The field was this like receptacle of probably thousands of different species of plants and animals and insects and creatures and fungus and bugs and all these kind of things that actually worked really, really well together. And so some of the, some of the more the research on modern agriculture, particularly in America that I've looked at, is they're having to, they're, they're rolling backwards, yeah. having wiped all the bugs. They've now realized that's problematic. So they're introducing bugs back into the fields. And they've realized that things like, you know, actually industrialized farming can have lower yields. Uh-huh. That, oh, wow. Thank no. God. Let's return yeah, to the, these old ways can have lower yields. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I I know, but in the Americas too, right? The three sisters, like squash, corn, and um, potatoes, beans. No, not potatoes. Oh, beans. Oh, yeah. sorry. I and was that, going like, to Peru. One I went to re- Peru. One <laughs> renews like the nitrogen in the soil, and that like they all kind of keep the work together to keep the the soil and the yeah. plants in like yeah, this yeah. perfect, beautiful harmony. Yeah. 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 And mm-hmm. this is this is one of the other problems that comes out with with searches on the internet for Egypt. Mm-hmm. Quite these sources tend to say they were doing crop rotation in Egypt. It's like a that's almost impossible to prove, and I mean that might that might be one thing that might show up in text. They were probably doing it because that's just a natural thing to do, but they weren't doing it because they needed to do it because mm-hmm. in Egypt you didn't need to renew the fertility of the yeah. land you got you got new Dying soil every single every year every year you got new soil brand new soil yeah. every year yeah 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 oh this is a perfect segue right. for me so traditional narratives about agriculture in egypt you know oh the nile the nile the nile we could get into the hydraulic hypothesis of like why civilization with a capital c started in egypt right oh they had they were controlling water what's problematic with this understanding it's too simplistic we can get into your canals right now and bring up the scorpion may set if you would like yeah and this very early yeah this theory being that state formation depended upon 
a ruler pulling people together and organizing them such that they could dig canals, create irrigation. And it was that intensification of farming from the top in a hierarchical fashion that actually created the state and the king. And, and this is a very early theory of, of how state formation occurred in the ancient world. And then people like Carl Butzer came in and said, no, no, let's complicate this. This is, this is wrong and too simplified. But, but Claire, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, so with the beginning of farming or tradition, like, you know, agricultural cereals in Egypt, it was an outcome of climate change that was naturally happening. So you've had the African humid period when all of North Africa, you know, there's wet and raining and there's loads more rivers and everybody, you know, savannas and everybody's hunting and gathering. Um, because you couldn't, it, what, the Nile was not a great place to be living at that point. The floods were far too dramatic. It was eroding things and depositing things in really dramatic forms. And it just wasn't, there was no stable landscape there. And then as that retreat, you get gradually less and less water in the flood every year. And of course, it's not, it's not just a gradual slide down. Of course, there's blips over time. Mm-hmm. There's always a cycle. And every year would have been slightly different and there would have been big years and little years. But the gradual trend is definitely for less water in the Nile flood. From, from I think it's sort of around, well, the date, the date is, it varies because, of course, north and south is different. But it starts to decline around 8,000, 6,000 BC-ish. I get BC-ish. And you, and you get a deeper channel around the same time? So, well, at that time, what happens is because there's less water and it's moving more slowly, you get more deposition of silt. Mm. So the floodplain yeah. gets better for bigger. farming. Mm. So the floodplain gets bigger. And yeah, so the yeah. idea of more water means better farming is that it's the wrong way around, actually. The, the Nile, around 5,000-ish BC, by 4,000 BC, the river reached a kind of an optimal point where it's flooding enough to provide plenty enough silt and enough water on the landscape but it's not too severe that it's eroding it away and it's it's enough um and also critically the delta stabilizes about 6000 5000 bc and of course it stabilizes from the south up to the north so yes. um people couldn't have been farming in the delta before that point because it didn't exist right. as we know it it mm-hmm. was just being river channels and, and mm-hmm. sand. It wasn't a, a delta as we know it. And basically around, so 6,200 BC, we get the first domestic mammals appearing in Egypt, where the Western Asian domesticated mammals appear first. So mm-hmm. they, they, it's sheep and goat. There's a big debate about cattle and pigs come in about 5,000 BC. The cereals come in around the middle of the fifth millennium, so about 4,500 BC, possibly earlier, because of course the dating is difficult. And they are the cereals from Western Asia. I was going to say, so all of this stuff is coming, yeah, from the outside in, right? Yeah. Yeah. in that, in so in prehistory, when when people were living in the oases and in places like Nabtapaya, they are intensively gathering and possibly starting to cultivate the natural African grasses, so millet-type grasses okay. and things like sorghum. And there's some signals in the archaeobotanical data that they start to cultivate it. And if they carried on doing that for thousands of years, it would have become domesticated. Mm-hmm. But climate change happens. Everyone migrates to the Nile. And these cereals come in. Either Egyptians went and got them and brought them in or they came in. You know, there's going to be a transfer of people 
across land and across water in that region. We haven't got many data points, but we've got the Fayum, Fayus, mm-hmm. and Beni Salama are the early data points. So it's just three places and the dating is very difficult because the radiocarbon dating was done in about 1951. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but material culture tells us that. And then from that point on, they gradually, you know, the cereals get adopted. They would have moved down the river um, and they would have, they would have, the methods of farming would have been introduced, but they were already farming. They were already cultivating cereals. They were already planting and harvesting, not cereals, they were already probably planting and harvesting wild grasses. <laughs> I didn't know that. I, I, I always hear and read, obviously this isn't our area of expertise, but still, you always read, oh, you get seed formation and then you get the domestication of wheat and you just assume that this is the first domestication of any sort of um, crop that can sustain a larger population that's come into mm-hmm. Egypt or that started in Egypt. I didn't know that there was a pre-existing farming like, of, well, yeah, of, yeah. Of, native, of native grasses. Um, yeah, farming yeah. is a tricky word to use there. There's these, let's say when we're studying the origins of agriculture in the fertile crop Western Asia, the stages that are recognized. So it's um, gathering, wild, gathering wild grasses in your area um, and then starting, so and then increasingly intensively harvesting them, which starts to trigger a genetic shift in the plants because they respond uh, okay. to the from human beings. Okay. Then you then you start then you start to cultivate those plants outside their native zone, um, and then the plants gradually start to genetic they change genetically and morphologically and they change their reproduction cycle the seeds don't drop naturally anymore and then and then then they become domesticated and that happened around sort of 11 10000 uh, bc in western asia so mm-hmm. thousands of years before they come into egypt so claire treat me like i'm somebody who knows nothing about farming which is true what is the difference between cultivating this word you used and farming because it's I, got, it's, farming's just a generic word for all activities to do with raising plants and animals. Basically, cultivating is specifically planting and nurturing plants. Basically, then you can do that with wild things or with genetically domestic things. Then the difference is genetically domestic things. We through human actions, the reproduction cycle has been changed. And so getting back to this idea of control of water and, and a- early agriculture and its connection to state formation, uh, you brought up that you, the scorpion mace head, and we'll throw an image of this in our notes, but if you're listening and you want to Google it real quick, if you Google the scorpion mace head, this is an early ceremonial mace head not to actually be used that shows a king scorpion, whoever, however we want to see this. And this has often been regarded as showing kingship's dominion over the land and displays the king with a hoe, like digging a canal. You can see some water there and some individuals around him. There's some plants behind him. And I think one, we could talk about ideals of kingship and kings, the Egyptian kings, the idea of the Nile Valley versus the chaos, the isfet of the desert lands and the kings maintaining this order. And so by him digging these canals and creating this like perfect agricultural zone, he's creating ma'at. And doing what kings should be doing. But what are your thoughts and readings of this being having your archaeobotanical 
background. So, I mean, there's various things playing in here. Firstly, looking at the school, breaking down the scorpion method as a set of symbols, basically, if we look at it in this perspective. So he's holding a hoe. <laughs> this image of a man, usually is, or pretty much always a man, holding a hoe, is only depicted in agricultural scenes of land preparation. Now, that's not to say it would have been different. This is a unique item, but this image is only appearing in agricultural scenes from the earlier scenes. So we're asking whether the hoe is used to dig dirt for a canal or prepare uh, the ground for plants. Yeah, that's exactly. the difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and is this is a very early depiction of? Yeah, you know this. Oh, uh, yeah, of anything yeah. exactly right. Yeah, we're, then, we're at the very early beginnings of Egyptian kingship. And- yeah, and then in front of him oh, no. is a guy with what looks very much like a basket. Mm-hmm. Now, in scenes showing agriculture and particularly the early stages of um, cereal agriculture in Egypt you have someone hoeing and then potentially some people plowing or not and then you'll have somebody with a bag and like a little purse mm-hmm. with a basket like a, a linen bag or a basket here and they're they're sowing grains mm-hmm. so here we can't see him sowing grains if you look at it as someone with a hoe and someone with a basket of some sort, then these two images appear in the the, the sewing of. Now, that would make sense to have the king doing that. Yeah. Land and someone's sewing the seat in front of him. This yeah. makes um, The fact that he's on water courses, if this is a religious, if we see this as having like religious symbology, then there's lots of images of water courses in tomb scenes. Um, that have images of agriculture, but they also, it's just generically the waterways of Egypt. Because um, the, he's standing on a, a surface and that has wavy lines in it. And yeah. those wavy lines could be interpreted as, as you say, a water course, or yeah. it could be interpreted as land that's being prepared for planting. He makes a hole with his hoe and then somebody puts a seed or a couple seeds inside of that hole. And I mean, he makes hole after hole after hole, but is it, is it even water or earth? Is I mean, is the, the, the image looks very much like water, but the the mighty shoe is because then he's and Jesus he's been, and he's standing on the water. So I'm just pointing. Well, that out. the you know Egyptian perspective. So he's above it, but it might <laughs> mean he's like behind it. But yeah. I also think like could this just be a symbol, right? If we're thinking about like ideograms, the water being a symbol of the Nile making things arable and mm. fertile, and so yeah. showing the river to be like look. He's engaging this with this is fertile is valley. Is it a river? Yeah. Is yes, it a river? Exactly. Yeah. Is that a canal? So the uh-huh. idea, a canal is a, ma- a man-made, let's see, man, usually, man-made waterway. Now, it's been said over and over again. So we know, like, particularly when you move from into the Old Kingdom, the, the number of official administrative texts that give us the, a massive range of job titles there's nothing to do with canals ever or waterways. I think there's one or two later mm. on in history, but it's not like a major title. It's not a major official office being in charge of managing canals. Mm-hmm. It just never appears in the documentary record. And they didn't need them. Basin irrigation. just to say basins. Yeah. They, might, I, they probably almost certainly on a very small scale, probably on an individual farm basis, manage some of the water flow maybe they blocked something up because they didn't want quite so much water going over there 
and they may have encouraged the water to come into other places. But it's not, it's not canals. So the, one of the problems is that the people who first wrote about farming in Egypt in the kind of late 1800s, early 19th century, were Egyptologists looking at tomb scenes in Egypt that had an irrigation system similar today with canals that was imposed yeah. in about 1801. The first evidence we have for canals for irrigation for agriculture in Egypt is the Ptolemaic period in the Fayyum. Mm. When they used it to drain land and expand the size of the Fayyum. Oh, yeah. so, so, I, so I have a question. So getting back to traditional narratives of Middle Kingdom, why they moved the capital of each Chawi. I'm totally getting off topic, but you just got my brain going. Um, and connecting the Fayyum to the Nile, like Bar Yusuf and all this stuff. So. That was that was my PhD. Oh, okay. <laughs> we could get into that. There's a whole there's a whole thing going on. No, they, the ice, naturally the water level was probably just a bit lower in the Middle Kingdom in the Fayyum and they exploited that basically. Okay. They oh, okay. may have done a little bit of management, but there's definitely no like there's no clear evidence for huge damming whatsoever. Okay. Um, Interesting. So they did. Ha- we know they cut waterways. We know they made canals in ancient Egypt, but this was to allow transportation. Mm. We know they were um, enhancing probably natural waterways to do things like get massive ships loaded with huge stones up yes. to the Giza yeah. Plateau. I was just going to yeah. say that. We yeah. know yeah. they're cutting yeah. immense, huge, gigantic basins, like yeah. the Hengua's Basin. That is man-made. That is to get things up close to the plateau because the water wasn't going that far. Take yourself to the New Kingdom, the lake. Uh, Benkhet Humble, and um, mm-hmm. they've proven all the work that the geomorphologists have done. So that Angus Graham has done, they've proven they've been cutting, they, they're, they're manipulating the landscape, but for transportation and access, not for irrigation of the land. I think the land, they just, it just, it, w- it was happening naturally. Mm-hmm. They probably did some small scale upkeep and management, you know, to optimize things. But the idea that their agriculture in Egypt relied on canals is, as to be lost. Interesting. So, so looking at looking at the scorpion mesa, do mm-hmm. you see it as earth or a canal? Um, I see it as um, him near water, potentially near the river. But um, and I'm I'm kind of not completely sure in it. But to my eye, those two those two symbols that we see of him with a hoe and a guy with a basket mm-hmm. is much more likely to be the planting of crops. And again, that would fit with the king. Yeah. This idea of the, the the regeneration and fertility and the planting uh-huh. of crops, this would make real sense. And if the king opening canals was such an important thing, how was it lost? How is it only on this one artifact? Yeah. Right, I right. think it's the very the king smiting symbol. That's on Everywhere. everything, all the way through time. And all the, so many other symbols of kingship are just really prevalent. And this one, this is the only example. So, and this is an image of someone hoeing to, and it might not be, um, because with hoeing and plowing, it's not necessarily hoeing and plowing the ground to put the seed in it, because what they often did was put the seeds and then hoe and plow to cover the seeds up. Uh, Um, And then have the animals walk on it or whatever, right? Sometimes, not even. Sometimes you have animals, sometimes you'd plow, because some of the Mm. seeds are very obviously someone sowing and someone plowing behind. Behind. 
part of this to like fill to it back up. Yeah, to cover everything the seed. is backwards in Egypt. Everything is backwards. So instead of plowing and then putting the seeds in, you put the seeds in and then you plow because the earth is so new. Yeah. The, the, the thing with plowing before you sow, it would have depended on the quality of the land and how wet it was and how deep the water had gone and mm. probably what you were planting. They would have, they would, again, farmers might highly informed decisions on a very nuanced level from that you ask you to talk, to talk to any farmer and they will treat every field in their land slightly differently yeah. from year to year depending on what the weather how much raining how much sun field spacing in different directions sloping in different directions every field is its own little eco zone and each field would have been treated differently and farmers know this individual like farmers who really work with the land when you move to like modern industrial scale you lose all of that knowledge mm-hmm. yeah it, yeah small yeah. scale farming where the farmers like my brother is on the land all of the time observing things and making these decisions fine-tuning things all mm-hmm. the time so you have farming in the family you just get to go pop pop on to your the, the land of your your birth and upbringing and hang out and, and wow. see what it's like i didn't grow up in farming my brother was obsessed with farming from when he was a little boy so he got into it i mean we lived in a very rural environment i was surrounded by farms with yeah. house house for house on a regular basis so i grew up in a really rural area and major farming community and then my brother became a farmer and cool. he's a dad. so i'm not as in touch with it as I could be, I'm not involved in working in it, but he and I share loads of ideas because he's very much in the um, regenerative, sustainable farming and getting carbon back into the soil. Things like livestock farming can seal carbon back into the soil, despite what people might say. I Um, mean, field trip, where where is he? Yeah, I was going to say, this is awesome. (laughs) So it's in Dorset in the UK. Okay, let's, let's figure it out. Let's do it. And yeah. what are the chances of having two I know. intellectual farming obsessed people? It's in, in your family? DNA. Um, yeah, and I think I mean he really he really inspires me because we had conversations about the fact that he's been breeding beetles that will take the dung back down into the soil. Which you know, so instead of trying, instead of using a pest, instead of using like an insecticide to get rid yeah. of the insects on his yeah. animal. He's been using something natural that doesn't kill the larvae of the insects. And in mm. fact, by then having the beetles on the soil, they take the, the manure, the dung back down into the soil, enriching the soil, sequestering carbon back into the soil and producing better crops. And That's also, awesome. because it's not sitting on the top of the soil, you have fewer flies. So, you yes, have fewer, yes. so the whole thing works in a beautiful cycle. And this Nature is at its finest. This is the thing with having fields that are ecologically diverse. Nature knows what it's doing. Yeah. Man yeah. comes and interrupts that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's beautiful. And it's so cool that you can apply your Egyptological knowledge and then see it on the ground with your with your brother's work and stuff. I want to quickly pivot a bit. So looking at if we're seeing here Scorpion, King Scorpion, as engaging in agricultural activities. This is a, a positive attribute of kingship, right? We see the king sowing the land, growing crops, feeding his people and all these things. But when we look at later, I mean, maybe this is more widely known when we look at later, like wisdom literature, didactic texts. 
agriculture and other more manual labor type jobs are often super denigrated, right? I think we can messy this too when we're going back to tomb scenes, right? We often see tomb scenes, I'm thinking New Kingdom examples, where you have the tomb owner, a super rich elite male in his Sunday best harvesting crops with his wife. And you're like, he wasn't doing that. But then in another scene in the same tomb, you have him overseeing all the laborers doing the actual agricultural label. So we see a lot of these like incongruities within within Egyptian evidence. Was it a positive thing to be a farmer or was it not? Because in this didactic literature, we see farming really, well, in certain cases, farming denigrated. In other cases, it seems like we have more positive associations of farming. We can pull some examples. I have up the texts. But overall, what are your thoughts on this kind of cognitive dissonance going on with agriculture? I think it's like so many things. Um, the person who owns the land or the production is celebrated and seen as the producer. Um, but the people actually doing the work, you know, the people working in sweatshops, making old clothing, um, they don't get any respect. So I'm sorry, Claire, Claire, those are jobs creators. And I need you to have respect for those who are creating the jobs in our community. And, you know, you, if you if you tax them, you're just going to ruin the job creation. And <laughs> so I just need to step in and support the top 1% for a moment in a cynical way. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always this thing of like, um, I, it's, it's just as simple as you can say, oh, blah, 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 blah. And Kufri built his pyramid. Kufri didn't build his pyramid. Yeah. He had nothing to do with that whatsoever, <laughs> other than maybe making a few decisions. I mean, it's this thing that the people, and as I talk about with my students, they start to recognize it in the world around us. Yeah. yeah and the, the, there is, there is, so with the texts, there is a difference in the text between, there is a, a nuance between the people who are the landowners and the people who are the laborers. I'll pull something, we could talk about more specifics in a second, but I think too, it's important to think about who the audience of these texts are, right? They're scribal. They're trying to, there's, it's a very kind of incestuous discussion happening between male elite to other male elite scribal, bringing younger men into the, into the system. And so they're, um, they have clear motives going on here. So I yeah. always want to re remind people that, um, I mean, as you read through them, it's clear that the, their biases and motivations. And I think, um, I think probably perhaps best known is um, the satire of the trades, also known as the teachings of Ketty, where we get the, the speaker talking to the, the younger scribe, trying to extol like being a scribe is the best thing ever and goes through the theories of jobs about oh you know you could be this you could be that they all suck and it's so hard and being a scribe you know you might be sitting here copying these texts complaining but it's still a, a much better position than um doing all these things and so i mean a lot of them revolve around agricultural work so we see you know the reed cutter goes north to the delta to carry off arrows for himself. He has done more than his arms can do. The mosquitoes have killed him and the sand flies have butchered him and he is cut to pieces. So it's a, it's a little dramatic in a way too. Carpentry, cutting beams, gardening is bringing a yoke with each of his shoulders bearing old age. With a great swelling on his neck, which is festering, he passes the morning watering the vegetables and his supper time by the coriander. Having spent the midday in the orchard, because of this, it happens that he only rests when he's dying, more so than any other profession, right? So 
apparently we all do gardening as a hobby now, but apparently <laughs> it's you, you only rest when you're dying. Um, the field worker laments more than the guinea fowl, his voice louder than the ravens. His fingers are swollen with all sorts of excessive stinks. He's wary, having been assigned to the Delta, for he is always in rags. Um, so it goes on. It's interesting to, I mean, just reading these out loud, the connection between wounds and disease and, and agriculture yeah. here, that if you're working in the land, you're going to get bitten by bugs and have festering wounds. Um, it's, it's extraordinarily dehumanizing. It's listen. making these people into a kind of livestock that can be so dehumanized that it can be counted as an owned thing, as something that is is just in the complete control of the the scribal profession that gets to consume and and control yeah. the means of production and the labor and it's it's a it's a really brutal pre-capitalist text in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, yeah. one of the things. So, what I have teaching in this region, as opposed to say teaching in Europe or the US, is culturally we're still closer to that than the mm -hmm. US is. And so, I give these texts to my students, and then I this just sounds like my dad telling me to go to college because if I don't go to university and get a degree in biology and become a doctor and don't do, or I don't get a degree in engineering then I'm going to end up working in the local supermarket or street sweeping the streets. Mm -hmm. And it is this idea, and there's also tied into this thing, I think, this idea that being formally educated makes you a better person than someone who mm -hmm. just has inherent knowledge, fairly specialised, yeah. highly nuanced, and does their job to an extraordinarily high level of skill. So if you look at craft working, to be a craft, most crafts require decades of experience and apprenticeship and training to be able to perfect it. That's not something you can learn in three years in a classroom. This is only gained through doing it. So I think these, any kind of employment that involves gaining a skill through experience, there's also some kind of manual labor, whether it's really physical manual labor or something smaller, like making jewelry, something like this, then that may, that is, that if you go to university, you're going to be a better person than someone who can make the most beautiful piece of furniture, but has never been to school. Right. And it's this really different values between manual skills and uh, educated school college um scribal if you want knowledge but even um, just thinking about Kara for the arts journal and my article that i'm i'm gonna submit for it but like the different terms between like artists and artisans and i do yeah. text textile work and just like textile like weavers often you know it's usually folk art versus fine art mm -hmm. and they're artisans not artists right mm -hmm. but like you could muddy this up when you think of like european tapestries and like how is that not art you know right. like a beautiful tapestry that's hanging like all the tapestries that you see hanging in the in you know in the vatican and and how is that not considered fine art and it's in the same way and the amount of training as you're talking about but we often we lump these things into different categories especially mm. from a western perspective um, yeah and it's become very fashionable of late and dimitri labrys led the charge to call these people some people in some professions with some things that we value artists and then others for daily 
life or th- then they're just artisans or craftspeople. craftspeople or something like that. And and then when you look at the Egyptian, you try to get an emic perspective. You look at the Egyptian words, the hemu or the seshu or the, the seshkedu, you know, there there are, but it's it's separated according to craft and it, there doesn't seem to be this differentiation between um, for value. But then you read the satire of the trades and you're like, wow, it's... um. It's all um, it's all brutalized and consumed and controlled by this True. jobs creator <laughs> class and it's of much, people. Yeah, yeah, it's complicated. And it's much easier to justify um, doing whatever you want with your population if you dehumanize them. Oh, yeah. it is. You are the better. You're the educated. You're the leader. You know, you can make decisions, and in, in, in fact, you can make decisions that have a hugely detrimental impact on actually your success and the outcome, say, for example, on the agriculture of your land. You can make decisions as someone who's educated in a traditional animal sense. And the farmers will all know that that's, that's the, the wrong decision that is going to yeah. cause damage. Like clearing forests mm-hmm. um, is going to lose all of the soil. Not to, So when I was in California, when I went to the, the sequoia groves, the, the traditional knowledge of knowing you do controlled burns mm-hmm. and that removes the undergrowth, which prevents the huge forest fires. Yeah, and then the, true. Other, the white people, the foreigners, the forest managers, the people who've been to universities to study this kind of thing say, oh no, we must stop the fires. It's going to be dangerous. And in fact, then you get more forest fires. Mm-hmm. But also in the United States, this extraordinary disconnect we have between our farm labor and our farm labor. We refuse to fix our immigration system because we want a more dehumanized farming, hard labor and not, community. And not have to pay. And so, so they can be utterly controlled in a pseudo slave labor type situation. Mm-hmm. And and that removes us even further from the, the food that we eat and how it's produced. And it's, um, yeah, it's it's a brutal existence to see that that has not gone away, that dehumanization, purposeful dehumanization of the quote unquote unskilled um, yeah. farm labor. And and just the idea of saying that labor is unskilled is such bullshit. But yeah, yeah. you know, we can, but we I mean, can talk the further about that. The reactions I get from people say, so you know, depending on where I am in the world, if I say, Oh, my brother's a farmer, a lot of people are like And if I say, Oh, my brother manages a business of yeah, yeah. And my brother manages a dairy business, they're like, Oh no, that's really cool. But if Ooh, I just artisan cheese, yeah. Now, the reaction just in the language is, and I'm not mm-hmm. saying anything different, but the reaction of just saying he's a farmer versus he manages a business. He does yep. both. Yep. But one yep. of those people will respect and the other one they don't. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And one that will might be subsidized by the government and the other one won't. And governments like to subsidize, at least in our country, but I suspect in Britain too, something that is more industrialized, quote unquote, intensified and economized rather than than something that's smaller and sustainable and that's that ruins everything so we're we're not yeah. subsidizing any broccoli but we're certainly subsidizing high fructose corn syrup production and that's just making us all sick and it's a disaster disaster yeah. of an and experiment yeah almond production in california oh my god yeah so bad all the all of our water yeah the almond our water. milk is good for the planet <laughs> yeah yeah mm, yeah mm-mm. so bringing it back down to the to ancient Egypt. So we have negative, very negative stereotypes of, of farm laborers. So you, the people who are doing a lot of the work get very negative stereotypes. But then in some other of these 
wisdom texts, for example, the loyalist teachings, we have a more positive one. So we see these are excellent professions, the cattle who belong to the cattle herd, you know, the herdsman, the shepherder, and saying, you know, one must long for the Nile, then one profits from it. And to God, these are excellent professions. You know, do not make us field worker wretched with taxes. So again, don't tax. So we're back to taxes. Um, let them be well off and stuff. And this seems, this is very contradictory to what we just read from the teachings of Kenny, where it was like, don't be yeah. a laborer. It's really bad. You're covered in bites and sores. And this one is, you know, these are excellent professions. What's the date of the text, Jordan? Middle Kingdom. The first attestation is from a stela erected at Abydos by the treasurer. Treasury officially set up Ibre in the reign of Amenemhat III. Because it, you know, it does make me think that of like a landed elite saying, oh, I'm a farmer. I'm a simple farmer. And you city people are so difficult and you're coming into my simple farm. So there, there's also a claim by landed aristocracy of claiming to be something that they're not such that they can avoid a certain reality of control that they don't want or responsibility or something. So I, I don't know. I want to read that text with a severe side eye, but it, but again, not my period, not my, not my circus, not my monkey. So Claire, what do you, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think there's always going to be, there's that with all of these things is, is it usually at least one text that gives you a different perspective on it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the step, exactly the same kind of style of text that gives you a different perspective. But I like that idea, Clara, of um, this being, yeah, someone kind of saying, oh, you know, look at, it's like this whole thing that I can't remember who I was talking to the other day about how in the nineties, it became cool to be poor. Like pop stars were like, oh, supermarket and blah, 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 blah. Look, I'm not flashing my diamonds and rings and all this kind of thing. I'm just a normal down-to-earth person. I mean, you know, it's the famous line from John Lennon. I mean, John Lennon was not working class. Um, But it's this idea that if you ground yourself to make yourself more um, um, appealing, maybe isn't the right word, but on on the same level. Like relatable or something? More every man. Yeah. More every man. I feel like politicians try to do this all the time. Like, I'm one of you. I'm not one of the like 1%. And it's like, you're all one of the 1%. Yeah. Like, 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 I'm relatable. So vote for me, not that person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which gives you an idea that these landowners or institutions who own land are walking a fine line between being the the good general who like, you know, Maximus in Gladiator was like hanging out with his men, like being that every man, like I'm farming with you to being that disconnected elite asshole who's like, you're covered with sores and you're gross. Just do my work and give me my my taxes. Thank you so much. And um, that's, I, I think, very interesting. I yeah. do want to get into a topic that's close both to Kara and my heart of gender dynamics within these texts, too, of, again, typically these are men who are engaged in especially the overseeing of these labors and in, again, going back to the king and conceptions of kingship as he's keeping everything in control, maintaining ma'at. He is keeping things and growing and everything's copacetic because the king's in charge. But then we see, we can think to the female goddesses or women in general, as oftentimes when they're discussed in metaphors relating to nature or things like this as wild and uncontrollable and untamable or something like this. And we think of, you know, the wandering goddess and how she has to be tamed by alcohol. And we get these 
dichotomies between women being, we can think of more modern European cases like witches and women who are connected to nature and wild as something that's bad and something to be wary of. Um, and that men are civilizing and connected to the state and things that are good, quote unquote. And the woman is domesticated with a domesticated and, product. <laughs> it would be her. Well, and that's, um, yeah. and that's what David Graeber's debt as the first thing he argues is domesticated as women, right? Mm -hmm. And that humans, enslaved people, but women, especially as the first thing that's domesticated in a sense by, by man. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The, um, the thing that, the kind of quote in a book that, um, so it was the, the Gordon Child's first discussion of the origins of agriculture oh, when yeah. they say, very fed stuff to thinking about this kind of thing. And there's a line in, I can't remember which of the two books it is, and it's the line, it says, um, and I'm not quoting it word for word, but it's something along the lines of um, the, the, the domestication and the cereals and the beginning of, the beginnings of agriculture was when um, man, man learned to control nature or at least at least like you know bell bend her to his will or something uh, her, like yeah those. nature being feminine yeah so the idea is there is that that man is the controlling thing that actually allows everything to grow and allows civilization to grow and allows the flourishing of the states because he has controlled nature and nature being feminine <laughs> and then again as you've said it brings you around to all these ideas as um yeah, female, wild, mother nature. We talk about mother nature and that that's the thing that man has to control. Whereas, whereas nature is pretty good at doing what it needs to do. And most of the most of the agricultural advancements or technologies that have come in have ended up just causing damage. And not always. There's always lots of talk about, oh, we need to. Keep, we need to develop these new technologies and find these new methods and bring things under control in order to feed the growing population of the planet. Well, for starters, we definitely already produce enough. We just waste most of it. Um, and then actually traditional farming, as these studies that I've been reading show, generally are more productive than the highly industrialized farming because the industrialized farming can treat completely it might be successful. It might be more successful in the first few years than traditional farming. Sure. But then after that, you've depleted the soil, you've damaged the ecology, and it can't regenerate itself. Um, so you end up having to put more and more and more chemicals in the land and more and more control. And it ends up costing more and more, actually, to produce it. So mm -hmm. it's absolutely viable as well. So Short-sighted. Yeah. 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 But it is, and, and we haven't like, even really got to me this idea this mankind mankind yeah. question mark mother yeah. nature dichotomy of control and nature being wild is mm -hmm. and we haven't even talked about damming rivers and what that does that's its own it's its own conversation yeah, yeah. yeah but it's funny too because you you see in this this wisdom literature too not speaking directly about agriculture but about suspicion about women keep her happy but like also be suspicious of her and what she's up to. And there's this sense of fear, anxiety about women with too much power. And yeah, that men have to maintain this control over things because lest a woman get some of it or some power or 
that there's finite power to go around also. Can I, can I share a quick little tiny anecdote from yeah. my, my husband, Remy's life? He grew up in Hawaii and he went to a private school and they mortgaged the house and they created lays, Hawaiian lays, to pay for his tuition. And to create the Hawaiian lays, they grew jasmine flowers, these bushes on his family property. And to create these these family bushes, they they had to intensify the creation of beautiful flowers as a bud that could then be pierced with a needle and create these beautiful lays that would be like incredibly expensive. And you could they were the most expensive kind and you could actually I mean, when I find out how much each lay was purchased for, I'm like, really? But anyway, so to do this, they had to use fertilizer. Remy grew up spraying horrible Roundup DDT like kind of things on the land. They, he had to throw out all the slugs and he hates slugs. And he had to like, it was a disgusting work. And one thing, you know, as we go into this bougie, I'm wheat free because and we, we can talk about how the, the wheat that we've created actually could be making all of us sick, at least in the United States. That's a different topic too. But as we go into this, there's tiger nut flour or there's cassava flour. There's all these different things that people are using to bake and they're rediscovering. Oh, there's millet. There's, you know, it's really cool that people are looking at all ancient these grains. grains. Yeah, exactly. And I, I brought home some tiger nut flour and Remy's eyes went apoplectic. He's like, why do not bring that into my house? And he hates the tiger nut plant, which grows with abandon in Hawaii. It may be invasive. I don't know. I know it's natural to Egypt, but it grows so well. And it is an incredible protein source, but he sees it only as a weed and a, and a destructor of his childhood because he had to go out there and weed to make these jasmine flowers perfect so we can make the lace, we could go to school. And it, it changes everything about how you see a beautiful wild plant that can sustain and feed, that instead, you know, is this horrific thing because you can't grow the beautiful jasmine for the tourist who's coming mm. for, for whatever. So th capitalism this is how, ruins everything. It really does. And, and it's like the plant that grows with abandon is not really a weed. And even in Egypt, you know, I'm, I found out from Amr that the tiger nut plant is incredibly important, but it is wild. And its wildness is something that can't be commodified in the same way that an emmer or a wheat, mm. emmer wheat or barley can be commodified unless it's ignored in the elite cultural record in a way that I find rather extraordinary. I want to follow up with Claire on whether or not it is, but Jordan, you go first. Well, so I have a question for Claire now that we have. So when you told me the story a couple of weeks ago, I looked up the tiger nut because I had never yeah. heard of it. And I looked it up on Wikipedia and it's a sedge plant. And I'm like, is it the sedge plant? Like of Egypt? It's not the sedge plant. It's not the sedge. Okay. So I the king like, is not a tiger nut is what you're telling That's what us. I was like. I was like, we're, okay. we're sad and disappointed by that, but okay. Yeah, out, tell us about it. Well, there's, so there's two types of sedge that grew in Egypt or grew, grew, um, that produced the tubers. So, you know, like a potato is a tuber. It's a similar kind of growth-ish. Um, but so, and the thing with them, the one of them, so the tiger nut is Cyprus esculentus. There's another one that's purple nut sedge. That's Cyprus rotundus. Now, this was the staple food in Woody Kobanaya in 18,000 BP, basically. And the thing is, when you pull that up, the more you harvest it, the more it grows and the more tubers it produces. So it is the perfect gathered food because you, it is impossible to wipe it out. 
and you can yeah. always see it regrowing. So oh, it's he, he tells me it's the most horrible thing no, that it the, grows and grows and, and it, grows. And yeah. that one, Cypress rotunda, is classified as the wild worst weed because oh. it is so impossible to get rid of. There's actually another plant that grows in Europe that is prehistoric in the sense of geological ancient, mm -hmm. not just archaeology ancient. Um, but the, then there is this problem with something that um, you, you can't, you don't plant it. And I wonder if that's where one of these things comes in as well, because you mm -hmm. cannot control, you can't control the mm -hmm. seed of it. And controlling seeds is the way they control farming now. Yeah, so you is. can't control the seeds. It just grows on its own. So that's probably one of the issues yeah. here. Well, they're like the king being of the sedge and bee, though, is this, if this is the sedge and it kind of is like a weed and super always fertile, always regenerative. Yeah, I mean, is also sedge generally, it probably refers to all sedges. All plants. Yeah, I was reading just recent, just yesterday or today, is that actually the lower the river floods, the more sedges you get because they they flourish in kind of slower, more slower water, yeah. slow shallow water. They really, really thrive. So, um, yeah. It changes, it reverses your way of thinking mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And And probably when the river is too low and you don't get a yield for taxation and like think of your nilometers always determining the water's great this year, it's an optimal level, we'll have great taxation. It's low this year, it's going to suck. The poor people, the peasantry, probably depended on those sedge plants to stay alive during the particular bad harvest season. Yeah. But I don't know if anyone's done this kind of work. I mean, that's that's really interesting. Because, of course, anything that uh, is not official isn't written about and isn't depicted. So, yeah. And the problem with achievers is that they, A, they've been consumed, so they won't yeah. be surviving. And yeah. B, um, they aren't, we, like, relatively recently, I'll keep it tiny, I mean, I'm just talking in the past 40 years or so, worked out how to identify them because they used mm. to be just, people used to think they were wood. And now, well, they weren't wood, but no one could quite work out what they were. Um, but we're getting better at identifying them now. But even then, they're quite tricky to to pick up. They're quite tricky to identify. So, um, yeah, but again, they're probably going to have been eaten. So mm -hmm. they're, they're invisible. In, in all levels, they're much more invisible than other things. Has anyone ever left a bowl of, of tiger nut tubers in a tomb? Oh, uh, yes, I think there are. I think there are. Um, oh. I might be wrong, but I've got a feeling there might be some in Khan Merit. Oh, okay. okay. But then, so, right, you're not, I've got a feeling there might be some there. Um, and there are, there are definitely finds in teams, individual finds, but I've, there might have been a bowl in Khan Merit. I can't specifically remember that. But yeah, I know they have been found in teams. That's great. Crazy. I mean, this has been so insightful. I feel like, if anything, this is a, <laughs> a good ad campaign for the fact that Egyptologists need to know more about botanical remains and so many of these misconceptions and just the muddying up of things and readings of uh, the scorpion macehead, for example, right? That's very traditional. So I just want to I want to conclude basically on how are these misconceptions really dangerous, right? You did this with your students. Google's perpetuating these misconceptions about agriculture. How are they really dangerous for the public, but also for us as scholars? Everything. And B, being much more aware of where the ideas and the things we read have come from. So 
a lot of the things that you will find just a throwaway sentence in books that you know, a chapter about agriculture or a section in a book about agriculture, they'll go to all the traditional sources and it's like, no, this was written by people who were in Egypt and they were going, oh, Egypt is still traditional. Things are done in the ancient ways, but it, it wasn't the same as it was in ancient Egypt because it's the same tool. There's no doubting it's similar tools and similar methods, but not everything is the same. So you mm. have to think more nuanced and not there is some continuity, but not in everything. There are, there, there are things that have been written that, that get those things out there, but there's not much. So we yeah. just need to write, think more and write more. But also, I mean, as I say to all my students, when they read all these things, I said, what evidence are they citing? And most of these things are citing or referring to tomb scenes and texts. And no. they're not referring to archaeological studies of architecture or animal bones or plant remains. And one of those problems is it's difficult to communicate those things to in on a more absorbable, you know, mm-hmm. more digestible level. Um so it is on our it is on our back as well, those of us who do it, to A, do the in detail scientific studies, but also find ways to communicate it, not just to other archaeologists and Egyptologists, but on a bigger level as well yeah yeah i think that um that is really really important so that people have got something else to read and cite instead of the things that are just being churned over and over again because at the moment the same things are being said yeah just people going around in circles so we people like myself and other specialists we just need to get more out there i'd love to have you back on claire to talk about farming taxation power how the river can trap people into a system, how it encourages an institutional ownership. Um, a, a landed aristocracy exists, but how the how the river flood erases boundaries. There's so many questions that I that I have, and um, so we we'd love to have you back on and and yeah, further was, the discussion. There's so much we can talk about. This is great. Yeah, this is yeah. like so yeah. far learned so much today, and it was just and I was like, moment, just pick I'm your brain. I'm just kind of in the beginning stages of working. I've got a book that, oh, great. that is focused on the botanical remains. It's going to be an a academic textbook kind of book presenting. I'm basically a, what I'm going back to is the old kind of study where you do a, you bring lots and lots of data from lots of sites and lots of periods and you do a big overview. So meta study, basically, mm-hmm. to say what you know from the plant remains from archaeological sites about agriculture in Egypt. So hopefully in a few, you know, years time, I'll, I'll have come up with some observations on all of this data and what we can say from all this data that has been collected on what, how were they responding to A, climate change, because yeah. that was happening naturally, and B, changes in politics and culture and the state, the need to produce more to build pyramids when the river is starting to fail or had mm-hmm. been failing for a long mm-hmm. time and was getting worse and worse throughout that period. Um, you know, so and it, it's never going to be perfect because we don't have data from every period in history, but yeah. And then actually saying to the to the Egyptologists, well, I've got this from my stuff. How does this now fit with what you have from text and all? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. No, that, that's great. Like a good, great synthetic text. Yeah. We need more of those. Well, I just want to thank you for taking time out of your busy day to chat with us for a little bit. And I just want to thank, thank you, you so much. And I, I think you'll definitely be back on because I at least 
I know Kara too, that we have lots more questions about this. So we'll have to uh, schedule another time in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, Thank and you. I'll, let, I'll let you, I'll let you take us out. So I'll say this is, and you'll say afterlives of ancient Egypt. So this is. Afterlives of ancient Egypt. Thank you all. I hope you enjoyed. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you to our listeners for your support and please subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to ancientnow at substack.com. We actually do read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all of that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. Support the show by becoming a paid subscriber at our Substack Ancient Now community. This keeps the show free for everyone, and paid status gives you access to our archives. Thank you to our current supporters. I'm at all the social medias. Look for at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.